Also, if you're joining us for the first time, you should know that we've been slowly making our way through the book of Galatians, but because of the last two verses in chapter 6 regarding the ministry of restoration, I was compelled to teach the other passages in the scriptures related to the same subject. Um, the ministry of restitution, or, or restoration rather, has everything to do with us um, giving our best attempt to restore a sinning believer to repentance, that we might bring them back into the fellowship, uh, both with Christ and his people. The text says this, Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6, 1 through 2. So participating in the ministry of restoration is just one way that uh, we as believers fulfill the law of Christ. And if we are to do that part well, we must be familiar with what the New Testament says about it, because there happens to be different kinds of protocol for different kinds of sins and people. Here in this particular passage, Paul commands us, uh, he's prescribing uh, here the kind of person that ought to be involved in this ministry, especially when it has to do with complex matters of theology and doctrine, as was the case in the church of Galatia at that time. And in such circumstances, Paul calls for the spiritually mature. He also prescribes the manner in which we should perform this ministry. He says, in the spirit of gentleness or humility, as well as adding a word of caution about being tempted. We do not want to fall, essentially what he's saying, into the same trap that we're trying to rescue people from. Now, what is lacking in Paul's instruction here in Galatians 6 is all that Jesus taught really in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And so what we did is we spent two Sundays uh, in that chapter discussing more of the protocol in regard to restoring a sinning brother or sister. And, and what we gained from that section of scripture was this. When we become conscious of a believer's unrepentant sin, it, it is our Christian duty, it's every Christian's duty to fulfill the law of Christ by confronting them in a spirit of gentleness or humility. And the whole while, at least in this initial step, we're to keep all of the matter confidential. And if our brother or sister concedes with our call to repentance, uh, Jesus would call us to celebrate the fact that we've won them, we've gained our brother or sister back, they've been restored to the fellowship of Christ and his people. But if they do not concede, Jesus instructs us to take with us one or two other witnesses to once again confront the unrepentant. If they concede through repentance, Jesus says again, we should celebrate the restoration. If they do not repent, he says we're to tell their sin to the whole church. And if they do repent, we celebrate the restoration. But if they remain obstinate, Jesus instructs us to treat them as we would a heathen and a tax collector, which meant to exclude them and to have no fellowship with them whatsoever. They were to be removed from the fellowship of the church. And of course, if they, following all of that over time, if they repent, uh, we of course should receive them and then celebrate their recovery. We also discussed in our time together what would be an appropriate 
reason to confront a believer. And according to the scriptures, we established a standard. Uh, you know, it, it has to be said just because uh, people don't always get along for whatever reason. There's plenty of immaturity, but we're not permitted to just confront people willy-nilly uh, because people offend us or whatever. There must be a standard, and the standard cannot be left up to us. The truth has to be outside of us. So in the scriptures, we find things that are essential, and then any departure from them, from what is essential, would justify such a confrontation. Now, the most important matter before us at all times is always, uh, we would say, the truth about God, which we have called theology. And second are the truths in Scripture and the truth regarding Scripture, which we know as doctrine. And finally, there are the issues of essential ethics of biblical morality. So failure in these or uh, any significant departure from them justify confrontation, both for the sake of the person and for the preservation of what is true and what is right. And finally, before we get into our text this morning, there are three categories of sinners, each requiring a little different protocol as we find it in the scriptures. The first is this, we have the sins of the laity, uh, sins of the leadership, divisive people, and then of course what we call heretics, which is false teachers. Our discussion in Matthew 18 uh, is uh, what we talked about is really the protocol dealing with the sins of the laity, uh, those that do not have an office in the church. Um, today, I would like to look at not simply the protocol, but a, a real example uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 regarding an issue of immorality among the laity in that church. So let's read our text. Um, I'll be reading out of 1 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read all of the chapter to you uh, from the New King James Version. I'd have you stand for the reading of God's Word, but I, I don't want you to spill your coffee. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says, listen carefully, it is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and such sexual morality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, 
or an extortioner, not, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we, we're grateful for your word. Lord, without it, we have no real compass. We have no solid direction. We're left to our own whims, our own opinions. But Lord, with your word, we have something concrete. We have your will. And Lord, it is for us to study and to understand. And Lord, then to humbly obey. And this particular ministry of restoration is not always enjoyable. It doesn't always produce the fruit that we would hope, but it always produces the fruit that is necessary. So I pray that you would instruct us further and uh, that you would encourage our hearts. So Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so sins of the laity, a real story before us, probably an uncomfortable story. Uh, Sadly, at least the kind of sin is not unheard of. It's actually rather common in the church. And uh, I've had to involve myself in a number of these uh, situations. Uh, Some have have gone well, others have have not gone well. Um, But it's necessary. So please return to verse 1 and 2, and we'll look at this more closely and see all that we can gain. Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and such sexual morality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that is the pagans, that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul, he begins by saying it's, it's actually been reported and he means reported to me uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul had mentioned that those from the household of Chloe had communicated with Paul regarding uh, the problems in Corinth, and there were many, many problems. Uh, I don't even think that necessarily this one is the worst, but there were many problems there. And the facts that were reported to Paul were these. A man in the fellowship, a professed believer, was having sex with his father's wife, that is, his stepmother, from verse 1. And the church, instead of being grieved over this man's sin, they were actually proud that such liberty could be exercised in the church, verse 2a. And the church, instead of excluding this man from the fellowship, they were embracing him, verse 2b. Now, what is so crazy about this particular story is that such sins, Paul says, that did not even occur among the pagans, not, not even among the pagans of Corinth. And Corinth was arguably the most immoral city in the Roman Empire. So Paul says, among those are the, that are the most immoral, you guys are doing something that's, that exceeds their immorality. And I think that what is even more crazy is that entire denominations today in both America and Europe are proudly boasting of greater immorality than what occurred in our story. For example, currently the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which is no longer Lutheran uh, or Evangelical in its theology, doctrine, and morality, are celebrating their first transgender bishop 
The Church of Sweden just communicated that they are trans. The United Methodist Church is looking to split over the issue of same-sex marriage. The Episcopal Church, which is the American branch of the Church of England, allows openly gay, non-celibate bishops. And there are countless branches of non-denominational churches that have gay and transgender, non-celibate pastors and elders. So just imagine, if Paul were alive today, what kind of letter the church would receive. I pray that we would never be worthy of such a letter. When Paul says that a man has his father's wife, he means sexually, but it wasn't just a one-night stand after which the man had repented. The verb tense in the original language is in the present tense. So he's talking about an ongoing relationship with this, this woman. They're not married, but they were behaving as such. So this is a case of ongoing, unrepentant fornication. It falls into the sins of the laity regarding a, a failure of essential biblical morality. And then the church there in Corinth, instead of confronting the sinner, he says they, they're celebrating this sin, they're boasting, they're glorying, as many churches are today under the banner of gay pride and tolerance. So as it was then, it is today. The church, it's becoming more corporate, must repent for not upholding essential biblical morality. And then every individual in the church that's involved in immorality must repent. The church must return to the scriptures to, I, I believe, to rediscover who she is and what her role is in the world. As Peter would say, the time has come for judgment to begin here in the house of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says that we must judge ourselves to avoid being judged, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one. 31. And Paul told Timothy, he said, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Church is to be purged. In fact, Paul says the church has been called, or rather is, the pillar and the ground of the truth as it was established by Christ and then built upon by the apostles and the prophets. That's 1 Timothy 3.15 and Ephesians 2.20. I think the reality that we need to come to as we look at how the church is trending across the world is that if the church is not subject to Christ in all things, he is not Lord of the church. If he has denied his role to steer the church's course of theology and doctrine and morality, if he has denied that, the church belongs to someone else. We need to repent. We need to be restored. Now, in our text, there are at least two more problems with this issue in Corinth. Paul has already instructed them regarding their fellowship with immoral people, a thing that they're ignoring. So he's already communicated when he was there uh, first of all, in his teaching, he taught about immorality, sexual morality, and, uh, and then concerning another letter that he had written. All of this is being ignored. And, and the whole church doesn't just know about this sexual morality. They're in approval of it, except for this minority in the church. And whenever we see this, as we're seeing it in the uh, Methodist church now, it's always where there is no repentance. It's a recipe for... Uh, a church split, and uh, can be devastating. And now that Paul's previous instruction has been disregarded, and because sin has found such broad acceptance by the church, it's time to take swift action. And really, it's Jesus' instruction from Matthew 18 um, that needs to be followed. 
It can't be disregarded. But here we have a strange situation, as we've mentioned. It's not just the individual sinning. It's the whole church celebrating and um, glorying over this. So uh, we must, as Paul shows here, the, the direction of Christ, his instruction must be expedited. Verse three and five, he says, for I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So because of the blatant, unrelenting disregard for biblical morality by the man and because of the church's disregard for Paul's instruction regarding fornicators, Paul commands the church to do what he's already done in his heart. He's already settled the matter. He's judged the sinner and now he's commanding the church to come to the same judgment that he has and then by the authority of Christ or to deliver the man over to Satan. But notice how he says, I want you to do it when you're all together. What an awkward situation that could be. It's assuming that because this man is still in good standing with the church, that he would be present. And then when they're together, they're to use Paul's letter, I'm sure, as a source of authority. And then they're to exclude this man. And he says to deliver him over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, I think the text and the whole context and other places of Scripture will give us some clarity. First of all, he means for the church to, to be purged of this man, who he refers to as leaven in verse 7. He says they're not to keep company with him, verse 9, not to even eat with such a person, verse 11, but to put the evil person out of or away from them, verse 13. That doesn't explain, though, what it means to deliver over to Satan. Now, but it does say, it does show us that to deliver them over to Satan, the first step requires that we exclude them from the fellowship of the, of the church. It requires a no contact order with the unrepentant. And so delivering them over to Satan is something that happens, we might say, out there versus uh, in here. Now, of course, I do not mean outside of the church building. There's no, there's no source of protection because of these walls. But I do mean the fellowship of believers, the church, where the instruction of the word is given, where there's corporate worship and prayer, there's the Lord's table and baptism, there's, there's the structure of leadership, there's the, the body, the family, we might say. The sinner who is unrepentant is excluded from all of that, from its protection, from its accountability and covering. And without that covering, the unrepentant sinner is exposed we might say, to the adversary of our soul who's constantly seeking whom he may devour. And so it is when people exclude themselves from fellowship by not having regular attendance with us or the person that is excluded because of church discipline, they're exposed to Satan. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's a, a moral and spiritual storm raging outside of the body of Christ. And the elements are unbearable so that long-term exposure, I believe, can be fatal. The only protection granted to us is the covering of the Lord's church. And, and I don't mean to be dramatic, and neither does Paul. He's not using hyperbolic language. He's being very literal. He's saying that Satan plays a necessary role in the discipline of the unrepentant believer. So here Paul says that Satan will 
hasten the death of the unrepentant believer by the destruction of the man's flesh, verse 5, but he says that this would happen in order that his spirit would be saved on the day of Christ. That's the day of judgment. The implication is that if the man persists in sin, it would be better for him to die than to go on living in sin, which would bring reproach upon the name of Christ and damage the reputation of Christ's church. If he does not repent, it would be better to just bring him home than allow him to continue in rebellion. Paul, he mentions the same uh, issue of Satan's role in 1 Timothy 1 when he said to Timothy, informed him regarding these men that Timothy knows and has done ministry with, he says, I have delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1, 20. So Paul handed him over to Satan really to teach them a lesson. Uh, in the context there, they were blaspheming something that was essential to the Christian faith. And Paul believed that the best cure was some exposure to the enemy of their soul. We do not know what came of those men. But Satan also played a role in Paul's life. When he was being puffed up with pride, he confessed to the Corinthians, he said, unless I should be exalted above measure. Now, uh, probably being admired too much by other believers, and then in his own heart being puffed up with pride, he says, because of the abundance of the revelations, things that, Paul, things that were revealed to Paul, all of Paul's accomplishments. In Philippians, Paul said, hey, if anybody can boast about what they've done in the ministry uh, or what they've done in this life, he says, it's me. So he says that, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul's confessing, I was getting a little cocky, a little big for my britches. I was thinking too highly of myself. Paul had forgotten that he was a drop in the ocean. He was a mere instrument in the hand of God for God's own glory. But Paul thought he was the cream of the crop. He was, thought he was chosen because of his great knowledge and courage. And as he had told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God is able to take the foolish things of the world and accomplish whatever he pleases. And so Paul, or God rather, exposed Paul to Satan to discipline him, to, to keep him humble and usable. Satan plays a role. But notice that from all these passages, that whenever someone is turned over, exposed to Satan. It is meant for the betterment of the individual. It's meant to spare them of further sin. It's meant to teach them a lesson. It's meant to steer them back to their senses when the church is not able. So as soon as the church is not able to do anything else for the unrepentant, our last resort, a necessary one, it seems, is to remove them from the covering of the church that someone else might teach them. Look at verse 5 and 8. Paul says, your glorying, that is, your boasting about this situation with this man and this woman, it's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, a new lump of dough, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in this passage, Paul compares the sinning brother 
to leaven, and the church is compared to a lump of dough. Now, in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, leaven is often used as a symbol of sin and pride. Leaven is that which spreads through a lump of dough, and of course, it it raises the dough, but it's actually accelerating the process of corruption. Leaven causes bread to rot quickly. Of course, we cut that process short by cooking the bread as soon as it is risen. But Paul's point here is that this one particular sin that you as the Corinthians have permitted is like leaven, and it's eventually going to infect and corrupt and contaminate the entire fellowship, which will even bring a greater reproach on Christ, and it will destroy the witness and uh, the the, um, reputation of the church. And this, of course, is the same problem with some of the churches and denominations today. You see, what had happened is sometime in their past, they had permitted, they had they'd tolerated something in the church, some sin, some doctrinal position. And as time went on, it permeated the whole group. And now it's not just acceptable, but that corruption is celebrated. And as we look at these denominations and groups, they're almost to the point where there's nothing off limits, there's nothing forbidden in the realm of sexual morality. And I'm not sure exactly how God will handle it. I guess there's probably some evidence of it in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but I suppose that he would deliver them all over to Satan, but that's for him. So Paul, in our story, he tells the Corinthians to purge out the old leaven, that is to to get rid of the sinner, just as the Israelites in the Old Testament were commanded to remove all leaven from their homes, even from their cities, um, prior to the Passover beginning. No leaven was to be eaten during the feast. It was a serious crime. And so here in this comparison, just as God rescued Israel through the sacrificial paschal lamb, God has rescued his church through the sacrifice of his son. And so he's saying, so like Israel, we should celebrate our Passover, as it were, by purging ourselves, by purging the church of sin. Wickedness and malice, he says, they do not belong in the household of faith, only sincerity, which is purity along with truth, should be here. And the Corinthians should know all of this because Paul has previously instructed them. As Paul says in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. All right, so real quick, what Paul says here, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Well, uh, this is 1 Corinthians that we have, at least uh, that's what we think we have. It is probably true that this first epistle that we have from Paul is actually his second epistle to the Corinthians, and our second letter is the third. Apparently, um, there was nothing in that first letter which would benefit the universal church, and so the Holy Spirit did not have it preserved for us. So if I suppose that if we were to find it, that first letter to the Corinthians in some ancient library, uh, it would just be purely a redundancy of things that we already know from the rest of Scripture, and it would provide nothing for the church. Be that as it may, this church had been advised not to keep company with sexual immoral people. But here they are, not just fellowshipping with a fornicator, but celebrating it in the church. Now, now just in case, Paul, I think it seems that he's giving them the benefit of the doubt uh, regarding his instruction on this matter. And so in verse 10, he says, 
Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul was not forbidding them from keeping company or from associating with unbelievers who were fornicators. If he had, we would have to get out of the world, especially Corinth and and the West. You see, if you lived in Corinth, at least as an unbeliever, there was a good chance that you were a fornicator. Because every year at the festival of Aphrodite, the city was flooded with over a thousand what we call temple or ritual prostitutes who would engage sexually with the community, especially the men. And it was considered in that particular pagan religion a fertility rite so that Aphrodite would bless their flocks, their herds, their fields, and their wife's womb. It was a community affair. If the Corinthians did not associate with the unbelieving world in Corinth to some degree, there would be no way for them to obey the Great Commission to preach the gospel to the unbelieving world. Now, of course, as believers, we can't have fellowship with the world. That is only possible among believers who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. But we must associate with the unbelieving world without compromising our theology and doctrine and morality. Verse 11, Paul says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, and he would also mean a sister, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. So to make things clear, the believer is not to have any association with another believer who is participating in any of these things as a habit or lifestyle. Now, let me clarify. It's something you know, of course, that all Christians fall into sin randomly throughout their life, and they should repent quickly. This is sadly a normal part of living in this world with a sin nature. And so Christianity then demands a lifestyle of repentance because we have not yet been delivered from the sin nature. That will happen when we're in the presence of Christ. But there are other professed believers who live in sin as a habit from which they do not repent. These are the people that Paul has in mind here, as with the man who's living in unrepentant sin with his stepmother. You know, we do not exclude people from the fellowship of the church if they stumble in sin and repent. Okay, we only exclude people who refuse to repent. Now, it's interesting in Paul's list of sins here, notice that he mentions sins from two of our categories, both failures in morality and in theology. As far as failures in morality, he mentions fornication. It's translated as sexual morality, but Uh, The word fornication can cover any number of sexual sins. He mentions covetousness and extortion. And then for theological failures, we have idolatry, uh, which really essentially botches the identity and the character and nature of God. And so idolatry really is just a a slanderous assault on the person of God. It, It reduces him. It actually identifies him as a demon. It's a serious theological failure. And so unrepentance in any of these categories requires the church's attention promptly and wisely. And of course, that instruction clearly is stated in Matthew 18. Verse 12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Now, 
This is interesting because Paul is describing the church's judicial and disciplinary jurisdiction. He says the church has no business judging or taking any disciplinary action against those who are outside the fellowship of the church. By the phrase outside, Paul is referring back to verse 10. He's saying those who are outside uh, are the, the people of this world. They're unbelievers. They're outside, and they're outside of our judicial and disciplinary jurisdiction. Our jurisdiction is confined to those who are in the fellowship of Christ. These are believers, those incorporated into the body of Christ through faith. And Paul is saying, and and we know this from the New Covenant instruction, that these people, us, were obligated to the theological and the doctrinal moral standards stated there. And it is the responsibility of the church to uphold these standards within its ranks. But the world at least in this present age, is outside of our jurisdiction. Now, they will one day fall into our jurisdiction, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, but they're currently off limits. Uh, this, this fact is upheld in the context of what was going on in Corinth. As we know, Paul commands the church to discipline the man for what he is doing, but he says nothing about the woman. The implication is that she's not a believer, and therefore she's beyond the reach of the church's discipline. Well, if it's not the church's job to judge the world, whose job is it? Verse 13, Paul says, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, in this present age, the judgment of the world is in God's hands. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, says the wrath of God is revealed. It's actually... In the present tense, it's being revealed against all ungodliness and of righteousness. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he's currently executing his wrath on people in various ways. It's happening now. But there will be a time in the future, as I said, when God grants some degree of judicial authority to the church to judge the world. The next chapter, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2. This is future. It has to do with the messianic kingdom here on earth because there are no unbelievers in heaven for the saints to judge and there never will be any unbelievers in heaven for the saints to judge. Judgment will happen here on earth during and at the end of the messianic age according to Revelation 19-21. through 21. Now Jesus actually describes some of this back in Matthew 19 verse 28. Matthew 25, verse 21, also in Luke 19, verse 17, and Luke 22, verse 30. But especially, Jesus talks about this in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. In verse 27 of that chapter, he quotes Psalm 2, which we'll actually cover this coming Thursday, but he quotes it as yet future. And John does that at least two other times in Revelation. Revelation 2.26 says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. To those who endure to the end, that is, the end of this age, will be given authority over the nations of the world. Now, uh, the word nations in the plural is a reference to those places where unbelievers dwell. We'll have authority over unbelievers. This is all future, though. Now, some people believe that we're currently in that age where the church should be ruling over the nations. Now, this view is called dominion theology, 
And it's held at different degrees by different people and groups. Um, here they are, from most extreme to the least. Uh, the, the strongest form of dominion theology is theonomy. Theonomy means God's law. There's biblionomy, which means biblical law. And then there's kingdom now. You've probably heard some of those. Now, with each of these, there's countless problems. The first one is this, from what we know from church history, that whenever the church has been, or rather had the power to judge, they've always gone too far. And they've used methods that are not even prescribed in the scriptures. And what they've done is they've ended up murdering people that simply disagree with them, uh, both believers and unbelievers. Uh, we think that the Inquisition was the first instance. That's not the case. Atrocities in the name of Christ were committed a thousand years earlier, but neither was the Inquisition the last time. Even some of the reformers killed people in Europe. They were killing other reformers. And the Puritans uh, executed people here on American soil. That's a big problem. And two, each of these positions comes into conflict with the chapter that we're talking about this morning where Paul says, what business do we currently have judging the world? Third, each position lacks biblical support. For example, there are no accounts in Scripture where God or the people of God impose the terms of any covenant, new or old, on unbelievers. And neither do they impose the judgments and punishments of it, which is exactly what dominion theology would like to do. Fourth, an observation that I've also had in reading uh, the material from some of these people, uh, a theologian named Wayne Gruden, he adds that in his experience, dominion theologians are unfriendly. <laughs> what he's saying in his uh, book on Christian ethics is that dominion theology has failed to produce really the fruit of the Spirit, which is a bad thing. Now, what we have to understand is that there's one great event that will indicate that we're in the age where we play a role in judgment. And that great event is called the second coming of Christ, where we're told that we will reign with him as he executes justice on the earth with a rod of iron, Revelation 2.27. And then as a result of that, the earth will be filled with his righteousness. Until then, though, we're to remain faithful to his word, to preach the gospel, and of course, look forward to his coming. Let's return to our text. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, put away from yourselves, that is, in opposition to judging the world which is outside, we're to take care of business on the inside. He says, put that evil person away from yourselves. Now that statement there is actually a loose quotation of Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 regarding the execution of an evil person. Deuteronomy 17.7 says this, The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, be careful to notice what is omitted when Paul applies this verse, this verse rather, in the context of the new covenant. He omits the killing of people. Now, in the old covenant... It was a capital crime to have sex with your stepmother. Leviticus 18, verse 8, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. But in the New Covenant, within the church, where any fornicator or sexual more person is unrepentant, the extent of the church's authority is to expel them from the fellowship. 
Once we exclude them, we have exhausted our judicial authority. All right, so in conclusion, I don't think that Paul could be more clear as to what the church must do with an unrepentant believer who refuses to repent, rather. He, he, he says it seven times, in case you missed it. He says, they must be taken out of the fellowship, verse 2. They must be judged, verse 3. They should be delivered over to Satan, verse 5. Like leaven before the Passover, they must be purged out of the fellowship, verse 7. We cannot keep company with them. They are not to be associated with at all, verse 9. We're not to eat with them, verse 11, and they should be put out of the fellowship, verse 13. Seven times, Paul makes it very clear where a professed believer refuses to repent of things essential in biblical morality, they must be expelled, must be removed from the fellowship of the church. So I think a good question at this point <clears throat> is that you know Paul has written this letter, a letter of correction and rebuke, much instruction. So the question is, what happened? Did the church in Corinth repent, and did they expel the man? Yes, they did. Paul's second letter, as we've said, is actually the third letter. It demonstrates this. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 10, Paul talks about how his previous letter brought the whole church to a place of godly sorrow, repentance, and obedience to the word. They had repented and immediately expelled the fornicator. Well, he's out of the church, but what happened to him? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 11. He's talking about all the grievous things that have happened in Corinth. He says, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. He says, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Notice that word, inflicted by the majority. We'll come back to that in a later study. He said, it is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What a great passage. Apparently, the man repented while in exclusion, but the church has been hesitant to restore him to fellowship. And so Paul tells them that this man's punishment was sufficient and that they should forgive, they should comfort him, and they should reaffirm their love to him. Repentant believers should always be restored to the fellowship of the church. What a great example. Uh, this is a real-life example of church discipline, and it's proof that church discipline works when it's done correctly. Now, we'll revisit some of that uh, there in 2 Corinthians 2 later, especially, as I said, the concept of the majority executing the punishment. Now, next week, uh, we'll be looking at the protocol regarding the sins of the leadership from 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. I want you to read ahead and study. It's 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 21. 
And then also we'll look again at a real-life example of leadership being confronted for sin. That's Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Well, that's what I have this morning for you. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and um, I'll let you get on with your Lord's Day. Let's pray. Well, Lord, all of that instruction there, of course, wasn't just for the Corinthians. It's for us. Whatever was required of them is required of us. We have the same scriptures. We have the same standard. We have the same Lord. And you said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Lord, we, we want you to be Lord of the church. And we want you to be Lord of our lives individually. But the only way we can do that is if we, if we obey your word. So I pray that you wouldn't just inform our minds, but Lord, that you would convict us deeply in our hearts and that you would grant us the courage, Lord, and the wisdom to do this correctly. Not that we might expel people from your fellowship, but Lord, that we might restore people to repentance, that they might enjoy fellowship with you and, and your people. So Lord, help us to do this right, Lord, in spite of the consequences. So Lord, we, we thank you, we love you. And Lord, uh, in closing this, our time in prayer, Lord, we, we do pray that uh, you would just be with the people of our church, so many that are, are sick. We pray that you would guard their lives, especially our elderly, and that you would, you would help them to recover quickly. And um, we pray, Lord, that you would protect the rest that are currently uh, not experiencing any symptoms, but Lord, it doesn't just go for COVID, but for anything, Lord. We, we just pray for your protection. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bring us back together very soon, that we might celebrate in your presence. Lord, I thank you for my church family, and I just pray that you'd minister to their hearts, love on them. In Jesus' name, amen.